Hello and welcome to this Switch Your Money On podcast with me, Susanna Streeter, Head of Money and Markets. And me, Sarah Coles, Head of Personal Finance here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Now, we're hearing that a lot of you are listening to this on the move. So that's in the car, in the garden, on a dog walk, or even on a treadmill somewhere. If you're a gym bunny, into the latest health and fitness trends, or just interested in how AI might revolutionise the wellness industry in the coming years, stay tuned as this podcast is going to do all the heavy lifting for you and shed light on the trends in the sector in an episode we're calling Track and Yield. Yes, we'll crunch the apps with Matt Britzman to find out what kind of extra muscle AI could add to the way we look after our bodies. And we're going to be speaking to a company dealing with all of this disruption right now. And uh, that is What Bike. And I'm very pleased to say Duncan Bradley, who's the Chief Product and Brand Officer, is with us now. Duncan, how excited are you about the trends ahead? Hi there. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a um, really exciting time. Um, obviously, COVID has, has really pushed forward sort of health uh, and fitness and particularly on the digital so yeah we're really looking forward to pushing forward with um you know personalized fitness it's a really really exciting time to be in the industry at the moment looking forward to hearing a lot more about the personalized fitness side of things in a few moments and in fact we're going to be taking a sprint around three other companies in this space with sophie lundjates and we'll get a fund manager's perspective later with emma wall and if you're listening to this while running, we will, as usual, keep this fast paced. So you need to be on your toes to keep up with everything going on in markets and the world of personal finance right now. You certainly do. Where interest rates are heading still seems to be a driver of investors' sentiment around the world. Meanwhile, the enthusiasm for all things AI has also helped drive tech stocks on Wall Street higher in the first half of the year. And then over in the personal finance world, we've seen mortgage rates reach eye-watering levels and push even above the highs we saw in the wake of the mini-budget. So for anyone remortgaging right now, it's certainly an intense mental workout, given how quickly the market seems to be changing. It's a reminder to complete your financial well-being check and trim out any of those extra debits lingering in your bank statements that you no longer need, especially if you really can't afford them at the moment. And that brings us nicely back, Sarah, to well-being and fitness, the focus of the pod today and it's fair to say there has already been a revolution in fitness brought on by the pandemic. I wonder how many of our listeners join me in tuning in to Joe Wick's daily workouts during lockdowns. Sarah? Uh, not a big fan, no I have to say. I did, I did watch a few, didn't actually join in. <laughs> well some of those habits of working out in virtual classes at home have stuck whereas others have fallen by the wayside. I've gone back to the gym instead of thumping the floor of the lounge. Uh, a big change for me, though, in recent years is monitoring my activity more. I am a big fan of the steps counter on my fitness watch. I mean, for years, I felt that there was kind of zero record for the amount of housework and running around after three children I've had to do. But now it's all there, recorded on the app. Yes, as long as you remember to put actually put it on or remember when you left it, because presumably with three children in the house, no one ever knows where they've left anything. Aha, uh-huh. but that's where the handy locator finder apps come in, don't they? <laughs> oh, well, yes, obviously, that's entirely what they were designed for. So, but you might have thought the way we monitor our fitness has already been revolutionised enough, but it seems we may have entered a brave new world with big tech getting in on the act to ultra-fine-tune our efforts. So Apple is reported to be planning an AI-powered health coaching service as part of the tech giant's push into health and fitness services, and that's as part of its iOS 17, the upcoming new operating system for the iPhone. So the idea is it'll harness the power of artificial intelligence to improve how we exercise and how we eat and sleep. 
When it comes to meditation, there's already been a surge in apps helping us achieve a more zen-like existence, with industry data from Statista showing revenue in the meditation app segment is projected to reach $4.64 billion this year. Over the next four years, revenue is expected to grow by 11% annually. So let's find out more about how digitisation and artificial intelligence could be set to be an even bigger changer for the fitness and wellness sectors with our investment analyst, Matt Britzman, who's been delving into all things AI. So Matt, what's your take on this? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Sarah. Um, you know, it almost feels like we can't discuss any industry at the minute without the mention uh, of AI. Um, you know, of course, chat GPT and large language models like that kind of kicked off the mass enthusiasm for AI. It seems like now the race is on to build new services and products that are leveraging that um, kind of exciting technology. Apple, as you just mentioned, being a prime example of that. But, you know, I think it's important that we don't just put all AI into to one bucket here. Large language models like ChatGPT but you're an obvious place to start, are going to be already causing some disruption to the fitness industry. You know, I can go online with a couple of sentences, have a tailored gym routine made for me, you know, a diet plan that builds in the kinds of foods I like and don't like. So I think you know, the industry as a whole needs to adapt and evolve if it's going to keep pace. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that is the real question then, Matt. What can businesses and the wider industry do to keep consumers paying for services? Yeah, that's uh, pretty much the million dollar question. I think the, the answer lies kind of in some of the other areas where we're seeing advancements that perhaps you and I can't access so easily by you know, flicking on a website um you mentioned the step tracker earlier and you know i wear my fitbit pretty much religiously these days and you know i'm definitely not alone in that you know the market for wearable fitness tech is massive it's expected to reach around 100 billion dollars in a few years time um and i think about my fitbit right now it tracks my sleep my heart rate i can add what i eat on the app um the amount of data that these wearables are collecting is frankly mind-blowing and companies are getting better and better at being able to analyse those large data sets by using AI uh, and the new tools that we're getting in the industry. Now, of course, for the makers of the fitness watches themselves, it's a lucrative business. But where I also see some massive scope is for companies and app developers who can leverage that data to create new and exciting products too. So thinking about the traditional gym sector, this has to be something that they're thinking about as a potential disruptor, right? Yeah, I think really it's a case of evolve or be left behind in that regard. I think, you know, the pandemic already accelerated the trend of working from home, as you know, Duncan alluded to earlier. And now personalised workouts, something everyone can have through an app for the cost of, you know, a coffee a week. And that, that's a trend I don't expect to see reverse from here. That said, you know, there's always going to be a big cohort that enjoy the gym experience. And that's one of the things that you can't really replicate easily from home. You know, the buzz of having people working out around you, looking over and seeing someone lift more weights than you, and that kind of, you know, pushes you to do more. So I think for gyms, it's going to be about integrating new equipment and having their fitness teams learn to work alongside the technology to offer results that, you know, you can't get from an app alone. And as we know, Matt, I mean, working out is just one part of staying fit and healthy. There's no good uh, running around the block if you just about to go and eat a massive packet of crisps after all so nutrition is arguably the more important factor are we seeing any adoption of ai in the food space 
Yeah, spot on there. And, you know, unfortunately, abs are made in the kitchen, as they say, though, you know, we probably all wish that they that they weren't. Um, but yeah, so it's a space ripe for innovation. Um, and if we take a basic example of tracking what we eat, there's already plenty of apps that allow you to do this. Some even allow you to take pictures of barcodes or food items to, to log them automatically. Now, kind of, I like to think about what the next level of that might look like. You know, think about being able to take a photo of your roast dinner and have the app pull out all the nutrition elements for each item on the plate. Or create nutrition plans based on a patient's genetic profile and medical history. So I think, you know, it's such an exciting time for the, for the nutrition industry uh, as well. OK, Matt, thank you very much. We're going to dive now into some individualistic companies and see what their prospects are, given the disruption erupting right across the industry. And Sophie Lundjates is here. Sophie, first of all, I mean, this is an area where some of the tech giants are really dominating, isn't it? Hi, Susanna. It certainly is. So Google parent Alphabet bought Fitbit back in 2021. I can't say I have quite the same um, joy out of the idea of a Fitbit as maybe as maybe Matt does, but that's just me. Um, but these smart and health-centered watches, you know, were really seen as a way for Alphabet to boost their footprint in devices. So, you know, it's well known that the Google brand is more associated with data and non-physical goods, but things like, you know, the Google Pixel phone and Chromebooks show the group's keen to delve into the hardware action too. Um, really, the reality is that Fitbit doesn't move the dial just yet for Alphabet. You know, data for 2021 showed that about 10.6 million Fitbits were sold and that generated revenue of around 1.2 billion dollars. You know I'm not for one second saying that that's a small amount of money um, and it really highlights the growing demand for health-based tracking and fitness. Even 10 years ago it would have seemed inconceivable that we'd have watches capable of tracking the intricate health and movement data Matt was just discussing and it's certainly a fast-moving industry. This is actually something that also makes it a potentially tough industry, especially now there are challenges like the Apple Watch. So there is an expectation that wearable tech is going to keep growing. So how well positioned do you think Alphabet is? It should play into Alphabet's hands, really, especially when you consider their strong track record when it comes to culminating and understanding data. Things to watch out on that front would be attention from regulators, um, as well as the ongoing risks and opportunities for Alphabet as a whole, rather than just Fitbit. The group's been caught up in a wider tech rally since the start of the year, with the valuation up 31.6% since January. A lot of this reflects the optimism from the market and the exciting ways Alphabet could benefit from the AI revolution. But at the same time, I can't rule out the increased risk of volatility. So Sophie, data... As Matt was saying earlier, it's clearly really interesting to watch in this space. But fitness science doesn't just apply to data technology, does it? You're absolutely right. You know, trainers are a leading beneficiary of the fitness revolution. The intricate science-based claims that go into marketing the latest footwear are a huge part of the selling cycle now. You know, claims of joint protection, making you run faster, and even ones that will say they help you tone your legs. You know, it's all out there. Wearing trainers is also no longer reserved for the gym or ultra casual attire. You know, they're a staple for everything from a night out to the office and such a seismic shift in wearability presents opportunities. So it makes sense to talk about sports apparel giant Nike. The group had results out at the end of June, which showed that earnings per share missed expectations, although revenue was better than predicted. And as an idea of scale, the group's full year revenue was $51.2 billion. So this brand truly is a giant. That is a massive brand, but but they're not immune to price rises, are they? 
So gross margins are coming under pressure because of higher input costs and things like freight and logistics have become more expensive too. The group has to play a careful game where pricing is concerned too. You know, it can't discount too much or the brand becomes damaged, but it also needs to ensure it's stimulating enough buzz and transactions. Ultimately, I think the sports science world and crossover with apparel is an exciting growth area and one that Nike is you know, primed to capitalise on. I'd say the valuation is likely to remain sensitive while it works through this difficult cost environment, though. So, Sophie, we've really focused on fitness, but how is this affecting the nutrition space as well? I've taken a look at Tate and Lyle. You may be wondering why I'm talking about a name that's synonymous with golden syrup in an episode that's meant to be about health and fitness. But the truth is, Tate & Lyle doesn't make that anymore. It's taken a far more specialised approach these days and is largely focused on science-based ingredients, many of which are focused on replicating textures and flavours while reducing fat and sugar content. According to the 2023 annual report, Tate & Lyle had 500 patents granted and 300 pending. So that's quite an impressive body of research. But how do you see this market developing? When we look to the industry Tate and Lyle is tapping into, I think it's really interesting. You know, consumers are fundamentally more health conscious now and they want healthier options more and more. There are a lot of regulations that come with bringing the associated new ingredients to market, like enzymes and novel bioengineering, and that's where it pays to be a cemented specialist in the area. Looking at the wider operational performance, Tate & Lyle reported full-year revenue of nearly £1.8 billion, reflecting underlying growth of 18%. Higher prices were the key growth driver, um, more than offsetting an 11% volume decline. Um, food and beverage solutions was the standout division there. But what about the other wider challenges they're facing, like cost inflation, for example? Well, it has been offset to some extent by cost savings. Um, Other challenges include Tate's reliance on corn for a lot of its products, which are a key export for Ukraine, which means price volatility is a risk. We're also seeing Tate's volumes drop as it hikes its prices, which is a trend that should reverse, but it will need monitoring. So overall, I'd say, you know, Tate and Lyle's strategy is the right one and progress is encouraging. The markets failed to be excited by the stock in recent times, which I think makes this an interesting name. That said, the valuation downgrade also reflects the challenges that I've just mentioned. Well, thanks, Sophie. Thanks very much. Although I am really disappointed that we weren't largely talking about golden syrup. So we go from golden syrup to, or lack of it, to a super health. So we'll bring in Duncan, who's the Chief Product and Brand Officer for Wattbike. So, Duncan, can I get you to start by telling me a little bit about the bikes? Yeah, sure. Um, so so Wattbike um, has been around... Uh, officially selling products since around about 2008 and we were born of really elite sport the challenge there was was actually how do you provide assessments and tests and structured training to elite athletes and particularly british cycling and what bike kind of filled a gap there at the time back in 1996 and we started producing very accurate bikes that coaches could could use to train their athletes and of course if you're an elite athlete you're looking for those last few percents of performance that might get you that personal personal best so yeah we ended up producing a bike which was really accurate with data it was super robust and it kind of took off from there got noticed by lots of other elite um, cyclists and elite sports and um, we kind of grew out from that into many other different sports and running and team sports and rugby and, and football um so it's kind of where we started i guess those bikes were also really useful not just for elite sports but kind of at the other end of the spectrum for health and fitness and even rehab and those same same bikes got used and adopted by some of the really big health and fitness 
partners. And from there, we've we've kind of really, really grown out uh, since then. And, and now sort of moving forward, sort of where we are now, we have uh, a range of bikes and some digital offerings going across both gyms and, um, and, and home use. So a lot of the focus, Duncan, as you alluded to earlier, is about personalisation. What kinds of things are measured when someone uses their bike and how do you then use that data to ultimately improve their performance? We really start with the goals and motivations of our customers, whether you're an elite athlete trying to win an event or whether you're simply trying to prepare for surgery or, or simply get a bit, bit fitter to keep up with your mates. So we kind of work back from there and build out your know, number of either tests to kind of baseline you and then build in sort of a structured training program. And, and really what the bike is doing is is kind of enabling that. It allows you to jump on a bike it collects the data really accurately you know helps people meet some of those training goals by feeding data into sort of the plan if you like knowing enough committed cyclists i know how obsessed they get about these sorts of measurements and their improvements but what about the sort of the broader market i mean are people just as interested in tracking it if they're sort of maybe just want to get a bit fitter and not necessarily you know be super fast on their bikes yeah absolutely so obviously for for what bike coming from british cycling and having a str- such a strong um, allegiance to cycling that's where we started but certainly over recent years and as I mentioned through Covid we've seen quite a big shift Yeah, you know, all of the cycling customers are still there but we've seen a much greater shift into people uh, self-reporting not as cyclists but general health and fitness but also you know getting on, on and actually getting a, a mental refresh by just jumping on a bike and dealing with the stresses of you know higher mortgage rates and things like that so we're seeing much more of a a trend towards that in very recent times which is really really interesting because they are all really known benefits of, of exercising um, and they're not necessarily you know, associated with winning a olympic gold medal how does your app work with other cycling apps and do you share data to improve performance of all the users of uh, these kind of joint apps customers have the ability to share the data if they want to but um, yeah, the point i think uh, with sharing data is obviously you're in the moment with the trend itself but very much what you do before and after is just as important you know, how you feed and hydrate but also how you how you rest and as you've been mentioning anything from step counters to nutrition there are all sorts of apps in there so to build up a kind of a holistic um, understanding of how you might maximize your training you need to kind of put a few other things in there as well and that's where i think integration with other apps really really helps it kind of helps you to understand how your body's performing and context the training your lifestyle and your sleep how they affect that and that all really does help help you meet your goals and i think that's where the sort of the main benefit is but you know, our app does does integrate with other systems you mentioned fitbit there and heart rate belts and things like that so you can definitely supplement your training with other information I suppose from a sort of a, a business perspective, it, it, there's, presumably there's the option you can go down of sort of providing absolutely everything and keeping this captive market all to yourself and making as much money from everyone as possible or sort of integrating sort of wider. Was was there a reason why you went with the second choice and sort of gave people a lot more choice about what they could, you know, which particular products they could use with it? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think if you're, you know, if you're one of the really big players like Apple, obviously that's a key strategic play that they have a closed ecosystem. If you're one of the smaller players... Um, you know, it makes much more sense to partner with with other players because the overall benefits are much greater than perhaps individually. So for us, yeah, we've always positioned ourselves as being a relatively open platform. Um, you, know, you can use our bikes on things like Zwift and, and do cycling simulation. And so we do position ourselves as being relatively agnostic as we can be because we believe that 
you know, people like the freedom to, particularly around data, to a to understand their bodies a little bit more, but also to you know have freedom to a little move about and, and put whatever data they want in there. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a strategic sort of direction for us. Um, maybe if we were as big as Apple, and we'd be slightly different, but for certainly for the time being, we're we're, we're very open about how our platform integrates with other users. Now, Duncan, we've talked before on this podcast uh, uh, with Sarah and other guests about the excitement that AI could bring for every corner of our lives. How do you see AI developing within your business? In my career, it's been around actually for quite a long time. And you know, on the face of it, you can see why, because as we're kind of talking here, our bodies, how they work are really complicated. And then we ask them to do lots of different things and we try to achieve different things with them. And then we've got the context of what happens in our lives and our sleep and stress and things like that. So they're absolutely incredible incredibly difficult um, things to understand. So AI and machine learning is brilliant at understanding patterns and, and working out what to do next. And I think for me, that that's really the key to kind of where this goes next. I think everybody you know, wants to understand themselves and how they can improve themselves. But I think for, you know, certainly for AI, it, there's lots of work going on and has gone on around using AI to understand the history of data or analysis of data. But I think where we've got to move to is actually better informing what to do next and, and making that very accessible in, in in simplistic terms it's it's got to be very integrated in life it it can't be you know lots of metrics thrown at you so um, we're really really interested in using ai and, and predicting and getting more personalized with data to help people um, reach their goals but with one eye on that you know, not everyone's an elite athlete in a really controlled environment with a coach actually lots of things happen in your life get stuck in traffic, you missed your training session or you don't sleep quite so well or you really fancied that piece of cake. Um, those are real life challenges. So yeah, that's where we kind of see things going is, is is actually helping AI and predictive machine learning to be more specific to, to individuals, but in the context of real life events. So where do you see your business going from here? Just how excited are you about what's ahead? Our business is growing, as mentioned earlier, from cycling through into you know, general health and fitness, rehab and, and mental. So we, we, we really see that as a, a growth industry. We're also focusing, you know, unsurprisingly, on the more of the, the digital side of things as well, because, you know, we spent a lot of time developing a bike. and We're really proud of it. It's the enabler. Um, but we've got to drive up the engagement and the accessibility of what the bikes can do. And, and really, it's the digital that does that both through you know, all of the AI in the background, but but also the design and accessibility of it, and how it integrates with people's lives. We definitely see digital as the as the way forward, but it's there to drive up engagement and, and really allow people to access you know what sits kind of behind the app, if you like, and the data, the AI, and and what the bikes are, are capable of doing. Well, fantastic, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really uh, fascinating hearing all of the developments and and what could still be to come. Thank you very much. And now it's time to get a fund manager's view on what could be ahead. Well, here's Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research. Hello, I'm speaking to Praveen Kumar, manager of the Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon Trust. Hello there, Praveen. Hi, Emma. So we're talking about healthcare, and I think it's really interesting in particular to think about the future of healthcare, something which the Japanese healthcare companies and, and medical companies are at the forefront of, aren't they? 
That's right. So, um, as you know, Japan is the world's most rapidly aging economy. And what that means is with a population that's aging as rapidly as you see in Japan, you do need the provision of quite a wide range of healthcare services. And along with the aging of the population, we're also seeing a shrinkage in the labor force in Japan. And what that also means is you can't really apply conventional solutions to solve healthcare issues. So we're seeing quite a few Japanese companies come up with creative solutions to work around these two um, long-term structural problems or headwinds that Japan faces. I've got to ask then, what are the creative ways that people are finding workarounds? Are we talking about robots? Partially, yes. So robots obviously automating um, various aspects of healthcare, whether it's robotic surgery, whether it's the use of uh, what we call as exoskeletons that people can wear almost as uh, an external suit. And then the way the suit is structured means that it allows an individual to lift quite um, heavy loads. So basically, you know, you're able to lift a patient, um, an immobile patient from their beds and, you know, take them to wherever they're supposed to be. But alongside that, we're seeing quite a lot of companies come up with solutions that are to do with using healthcare data in a lot more impactful ways. So a simple example would be to consolidate, you know, the various databases or the various sources of data, which contains things like insurance data, prescription uh, drug data, and get all of that in a centralized system and make it very, very easy and quick for the users of this data, i.e. your doctors, your GPs, your surgeons, giving them quick access to this data. So that sort of provision of healthcare data is another area where we're seeing a lot of innovation in Japan. And how much is that data being just kept within the sort of providers of healthcare and how much of it is being shared. The reason I ask that is because in other parts of Asia, we've started to see health data being provided to insurers, for example, to help influence the cost of, of your premiums. Or is this purely about delivering the best possible healthcare in an efficient way? I think that's a good point. So it's basically both. So the first point that you mentioned about sharing uh, patient healthcare data which can then be used by people like uh, insurance companies, for instance, to price um, insurance policies for customers. So we're seeing a lot of that happen in Japan. But alongside that, we're also seeing the um, provision of data, a sort of more um, creative use of data in terms of providing preventative care. So there are loads of companies, especially at the smaller end of the market cap spectrum that are in some cases using um, artificial intelligence type technologies to basically not just gather this huge amounts of data, but also interpreting this data. I think the second bit, the interpretation bit, understanding what this data actually means is the holy grail because there's not a lot of companies across the world really that have been able to do that quite successfully at a very large scale. Okay, then. So we've talked about the creative ways that people are using data, AI, robotics and technology to improve healthcare provision. What about then some companies that, in your view, are doing this well? So one of the companies that we own in uh, Shin Nippon, it's called M3. So this company started off by providing an online platform for marketing drugs. So traditional model would be to um, hire an army of medical representatives who go around each clinic and try and uh, sell a particular company's drugs. 
M3 basically came out with its online model that did away with this massive swathe of costs. And they ended up having uh, the largest database of not just drugs, but even the doctors who had signed up uh, to M3's platform. It was able to get quite a treasure trove of data from the doctors in terms of the patients they were treating, the kind of conditions that they were treating, the medication that the patients were getting. And very cleverly, they used the data to branch into a number of adjacent areas helping drug companies with clinical trials. So when you do a clinical trial, you obviously need patients. And by having access to this data of doctors and their patients, M3 was able to significantly accelerate the patient recruitment process. And what are the threats to a company like that? Because as we all know, with investing, nothing is guaranteed. That's right. So the obvious threat would be if M3 were to deviate from its core purpose and its core competitive advantage. So its core strength lies in how well it can use its considerable database. And the risk with that would be if management decide to branch into an area where they have, you know, questionable competitive edge, which is not related to their core. So that, that in my view, is likely to be the key challenge for management over the next 10, 10 odd years. Praveen, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. So that was Praveen Kumar, manager of the Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon Trust on the 3rd of August 2023. That was Emma Wall, our head of investment analysis and research. And please bear in mind that was the view of the fund manager in that interview and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now it's time for Stat of the Week. It certainly is. And we're going to go back to steps. So most fitness trackers come with a default of 10,000 steps. But how close do we get? How many steps do you think we do on an average day? So that's the average person on an average day, Sarah. I was going to say not not we do on an average day, obviously, with, with all the, you know, with all the running around after other people we do. I mean, definitely mine will depend on just just how many chores I've got going on. I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to say, oh, we all do 10,000 steps. Sadly not. Apparently it's somewhere between three and four thousand. But do you know what? I always do way over that. So it's, I think people just can't live in a townhouse with teenagers. I am constantly up and down those stairs. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, I, I have to say I'm a huge fan of leaving things in piles on the stairs for everyone just to, to walk past and ignore for a week before I take them up anyway. This is the fun of parenting things. It just never ends. It certainly doesn't. And I know at the bottom of my stairs on the landing, there is a huge pile of stuff that I also, Sarah, will inevitably be the one who takes up there. I think we need to go on strike, but not on this podcast, of course. Before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 19th of July 2023 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Unlike the security offered by cash, investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is me to thank Matt, Sophie, Emma, our guests and our producer, Elizabeth Hotson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.